love so amazing, so divine, demands my life, my soul, my all. I wonder if he sung those words there without flinching, not actually realising the implications of what it is we've just sung. My life, my soul, my all. That's what we've just sung to God. We have a God that takes us up on our word. Because when he speaks, he means what he says. And we see here in our verses, God looking for those kinds of responses from people. Those kinds of responses in light of what it is that he has done and what he's revealed to people. Today we're looking at these events in Exodus. Events that will teach us and remind us that God is the creator and sustainer of all things. The living God. The only God. But he is one who seeks to call people into relationship with him. And yet, it's, and, yet and this is perhaps the important part. When we learn now, when we respond to him, he calls people to be holy, to be distinct, to be set apart for him. This morning we'll be reminded of some of that. We're going to be looking into concepts such as sin and holiness and the difference maker who is Jesus Christ. But in the midst of all of that, we remember too those verses in Peter. And this is what takes us into Exodus. Now just read these verses. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 10 and 11, where it says, Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. God has taken us who were once not a people and he's made us a people. Part of his body, the church. Something we enter through faith and trust in Jesus Christ. There is no other way into that body other than through Jesus Christ himself. So as we hear God speak to Exodus, we must listen also to God speak to us today. As he says to this people, you are to be distinct, holy to God, his possession. It's so vital that we too hear those words, learn to seek his ways, his ethics, his heart. Learning to do that beyond our own opinions. What the media tells us. What the culture that we live in tells us. And now more than ever, we see challenges laid before us, but I want to encourage us to always have a burning question. Are we sure that what we call good, God calls good? For he calls his people into a life of faithfulness, and that means distinct and set apart, other to the world that we live in, but belonging to God. To be distinct... We have to seek and inquire and learn the ways of God. That burning must be in our heart to drive us to learn, to pray, to discuss, to act. For ultimately, it must be his will and his heart that we seek as individuals and as a church. So I want us to go back in time to rewind to the days of Exodus, to the people of Israel who have been led out of Egypt with these remarkable events 
And they're about to experience something that I would argue is more staggering and awe-inspiring than anything that they've experienced up to that point. They're about to experience a holy moment like you see few others of in the Old Testament. They're about to have an encounter with the living God. What an amazing moment it is that we get to peer back into as God speaks to his people and seeks to begin a covenant with him. God with his people. So the first thing I would like us to look at is that we see here that God is a covenant making God. What he's seeking to do is to make a covenant with these people and it's not based on anything abstract. The first thing he tells them, if you look into verse 4, is exactly what he has done. You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. This isn't something abstract. The people have seen God act. They've seen what God has done, how God has been their liberator, their leader, the one that's led them from slavery and poverty and worthlessness. Out of all of that, to himself at this holy moment, at this holy mountain. God has done that. And this is the basis on which they are to understand things. He is their protector. He is their provider. This isn't some unknown God that they've got to guess at, that they've got to try and work things out, that they've got to throw sticks up in the air and see how they land or anything like that. They're giving something profound and revelatory about God in which they can understand him. That he is a faithful God, that his promises are true. And they as a people have experienced it. You have seen what I have done, is what God says first as he begins this process with the people. Ultimately, how I have led you to myself, to this moment here. But then he is looking for something from them. He is looking for a response from these people. On the foundation of that, on the foundation of God's faithfulness, his goodness, his revelation to the people, there is to be this covenant. And you see God saying this in verse 5, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. All the earth is God's. And yet for this people, if they hear and heed God's voice and keep his covenant, they will be a unique people, precious to God. And he expands on that a little bit in verse 6 for them. He wants a response from these people. We looked at this last week in Deuteronomy 7 that it wasn't just a list of rules and do's and don'ts. There was something from the heart. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Those who hate me, I will bring shame on. There was this response from the heart that God was looking for from the people. And he's touching on that here as well. He wants them to be a people that obey his voice. Not all the other voices about them, not what Joe thinks or Freddie thinks or what Bob thinks or Sylvia thinks or whoever it might be. I can't quite think of Hebrew names quick enough to say them, but we've adopted most of them anyway, so it could be the same. But he wants them to hear his voice, to listen for God. And then to obey what God is saying. This people are to seek after God, to seek his ways. And to base their culture, their ways, their ethics, their principles on that. They're to be distinct and this makes them a treasure for God. And it makes them a beacon of light to the nations around them as well. For Israel was called to be a holy nation. 
God spells this out as well. When you see verse 6, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are words that Peter takes and applies to the church as well. Now right now, of course, Israel wasn't a nation at this point. They had no land to call their own. They're at the beginning of the exodus in many ways. Yet they have a promise. Where they went, they were to make home. That that was where they, sorry, where they were to make home was to be a distinct place. They weren't to be like the nations around them. Just a reflection, a mirror of what the cultures around them were doing. So around where they would make their home, there was all sorts of bizarre idolatry and child sacrifices and all sorts of other nonsense going on. No, Israel was to be different to that. Israel was to be distinct. God had given Israel a fair code of justice. He'd given them a fair ethic. He'd given them a fair way to deal with the stranger and the exile that would come into their land. They were to be different to the nations around them. Their culture distinct, with things like justice and fairness being key elements of it. You only have to look, for instance, at the Jubilee to see an example of that. That every 70 years, there would be this reset button hit. That everything people had lost for stupidity or mistakes, and everything that had caused people to end up almost as servants, would all be changed. Because Israel wasn't to be a capitalistic culture where you saw the strong get to the top and the weak crushed. God had built provision in the culture that he sought to institute in Israel into their very law itself. They were to be different. They were to be distinct. They were to be a discerning people who took their walk with God seriously enough that they would wrestle with things to find his will. They wouldn't just simply adopt the ways of the culture around them. A people that had a love for God and what God had given them. You see that if you look later in the Second Chronicles, chapter 34, you see the story there of Josiah and how he re- recovers the book of the law. They read it and they're pierced to the heart because they realize we've not been following any of this. And when they call out to God for clarity, he says, yeah, you haven't. Judgment is coming because of that. You're to be my people, a holy people. But Josiah's humility brought changes to that and began to put the nation back on the right path. And the reason that is so important is because this wasn't just a nation in the midst of many. This was God's nation. A holy nation. A holy people. that were to be distinct from the people around them so they could be a light to the ways of God in a world that is battling with sin. They are to be a faithful people to God. And where they fail, that light would be dimmed. And God would be grieved. And it's no casual thing to grieve God. He wanted to bring this people into covenant. And that would be a holy covenant. The people agreed to the covenant. As you, as you can see, so Moses came, he called the elders and set them before all the words. This is verse 7, that God had commanded them. All the people answered together. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people back to the Lord. So there's that moment, verse 8. The people make that verbal agreement. All that God is asking of us, we will do. That covenant is established Follow God's ways. Follow God's ways above all others. And you may think that's not very relevant to Christians today, but let me ask you this question. When we began our walk with God and declared those words, Jesus is Lord, what do you think we were saying? 
something very similar. You are my Lord. I will follow your ways. This is part of the covenant that we have with God. So the people agree, and one of the things they're told is draw near with reverence. God gives instructions to the people about how they're to approach him. This isn't a casual encounter. They can't just simply saunter up to God and casually do whatever they want. This isn't a moment where they can be disinterested and wander in, having rolled out of bed and not really knowing what's going on with life in the world. This is a holy moment. One of the fancy phrases for this is it's called a theophany. A moment where God is very physically present on earth in some way, shape or form. And theophanies bring holiness. In many ways they bring danger. And we see God warn them of this. If anyone touches this mountain, they're to be stoned or shot with bow and arrows. Now we might think, oh, hold on, that's, that's a bit extreme, is it not? But you'll notice there that one of the things that God is saying is the person cannot be touched. What's going on there? Why would God be putting words such as this into it? Well, one of the things we've got to realize is that as God descends and holiness descends, the people have got to prepare there to cleanse themselves. They're given a set of instructions. They're warned not to touch this mountain. Why is that? At its core, one of the key things going on here is that the unholy are encountering the holy. Now, for all the stuff God can do for Israel and for the relationship that he could call them into, there is still that element of sin active in that community. And because of that, should they touch that mountain? Should they touch holiness? consequences of that were to be death. And we struggle to understand that. It doesn't make much sense to us. But in this holy moment, people were to be reverent, careful. They couldn't just wander up and do whatever they pleased. It's kind of, you see something similar today with all the protocols. If somebody gets to meet the king or queen or something like that, they're given a list of protocols. There's things you can do and things you can't do, things you can say, things you shouldn't say. I don't even know if eye contact's allowed. There's so many different rules. And that's just for, 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 for a human. Here we see people encountering the living God and this unique theophany that Israel is experiencing and then it brings that risk because holiness is there because God descends onto this mountain. And I wonder, can you imagine the wonder of that moment? There is the people of Israel, they've just been set free from slavery. They come to this mountain and then these remarkable events unfold. They've been told God will make you his people. Here, you see God with his people in this unique and very special way. God descends and draws the people to him. To call them into life with him. And I would say that this is a, a majestic moment. One of the highest points of Israel must be this moment. It's so unique and so special for the people. I was reading a blog on this and one of the, the questions that the, the, the chap asked was how would Moses respond to how we approach God today? 
if we were to bring Moses to church this morning and say he'd stayed over at the house and he saw how we prepared as we got up, what we prioritised and what we didn't. We brought him along to the service and Moses understood what was going on and what God was doing with the church. How would he respond? And I want to throw just a few questions out here. Do we prepare? Do we prepare to encounter the living God? Or is it just something that we do? How often are we distracted? How many of us are wondering, perhaps even right now, my phone's just vibrated. Why is that? What's going on? What's on? Who's trying to get in touch with me? Is it important? Do we pray before we come to church? Remember that two weeks ago, we noted that God is using us as living stones. And in the church throughout the world, as living stones being pulled together into a temple where his glory dwells. This morning isn't a theophany. But it's not far off it. For as we gather together, we are those living stones in God's presence and his glory dwells with his people. This is a holy place. God is here. For Israel, it meant they couldn't touch the mountain. What does it mean for us? I pondered that, and then very interestingly, my daily reading, uh, well, sorry, the verse for today that often comes up on my phone, one of them was about this exact issue. And I read those verses at the start, and I want to read them again for us just now. And it's from Hebrews chapter 4. If I can find the book of Hebrews, it's hiding very well from me. There we go. And those verses tell us, Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. What is our confession? Our confession is that Jesus is Lord. He is our Savior. And Him alone can I be saved and cleansed from sin. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who was tempted in every way as we have been tempted, yet is without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace and to help in our time of need. Think about what we've just read there for a second. Israel is told... Don't touch this holy mountain, for there God's presence lies. You will die. We are told, confidently come into the throne room of God himself. Wow. And why is that? It's because of this amazing new covenant that God has given each and every one of us. This is why the writer of Hebrews can say, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of God. How is that possible? Has God changed? Is he not as serious about sin today as he was a couple of thousand years ago? Do we think that perhaps he's just chilled out a little bit? got used to the way things are and doesn't see sin as 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 big a deal. 
Is that what we think is maybe going on and why the writer of Hebrews would write astounding words such as these? Is God not as bothered about sin today? We are told very clearly in Scripture that God is unchanging. The same yesterday, today and forever. Sin remains a devastating problem. It continues to separate people from the love of God and life with God. We see it destroy lives and destroy cultures. Very clearly and visibly still today. We see its fruit in lots of different areas. What's changed from is that God has done something that redefines everything. Ultimately what's changed is the mediator. The one called the high priest by the writer of Hebrews. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. What's changed is everything because of Jesus. Everything because of Jesus. Let me be clear. It's not that the people today are less sinful than the people of 2,000 or 4,000 years ago. That's not the case. It's not that God is chilled out and he's a bit more chillaxed about things these days. What's changed is Jesus. Because he has become the great high priest. And through his holiness and righteousness, the writer of Hebrews can say to people such as us, with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Israel, I couldn't touch the mountain. But we can enter the throne room. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing what God has done in Jesus Christ? That he has so monumentally and fantastically changed who we are, what experience of God is. That we are a holy people. By placing our faith in Jesus Christ, we are holy. And let me be clear, if we have not placed our faith in Jesus Christ, that problem remains. Sin isn't disappeared down the, 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 the river. Sin remains a devastated and substantial problem. The place of victory, the place where the power of sin is broken is through faith in Jesus alone. So if this morning we don't know if we're a Christian or if this morning we don't even know what it means to be Christian, understand this, God is here, he loves you. And he's calling you not to jump through hoops, but to move into his arms. If you're not sure what that means or what it means to be Christian, talk to somebody. To me or to the folks sitting beside you. We can pray for you. And you can experience what so many of us in this room experience. And what when we're confronted with it this morning, we're, we should be thinking, wow. This is what Jesus has done for me. Wow. That unholiness has been obliterated in Christ. 
I can go into the throne room of God himself. Let's remember that throne room in Isaiah, the angels are covering their eyes and crying holy. And Jesus says we can go in there. We can call that one that sits on the throne. Father. Father. All of this, not because we deserved it or merited it, but only because of what Jesus had achieved. And because of that, we are a people. We are his people. God has worked to make us his people. God has paid a handsome price to be his people. A people that Peter says are marked by mercy. We are that holy people. But I wonder, does it leave us in wonder? Does any of what we have just looked at leave us in wonder and stir our hearts that even the, the, the experiences of Israel in this guard the mountain, don't let anyone near it because the unholy can't encounter the holy. But in Jesus Christ, we can go into the throne room of God himself with confidence, it said. Now, how many of us this morning, if we somehow go into Buckingham Palace, would enter the throne room of the Queen with confidence? Yeah, we'd go to London, but we wouldn't try and get into Buckingham Palace and do that. And why wouldn't we do that? We wouldn't do it because, well, we know we don't really have any right to do that. We don't have the status to do that. There are very few people that could do that. And if we try to do that, we're going to get turfed out and maybe even arrested. And we maybe wonder, can they still hang us today? Well, I might be about to find out. We wouldn't do it. We wouldn't do it because we don't have the status, we don't have the merit, we don't have the right. But here, what we're being told is that in Jesus Christ we're given the status, the merit, dare I say, even the right to enter the throne room of God because of what Jesus has done. And he's in that throne room and calls us into his presence there. Does that stir our hearts? Does it move us in any way what God has done? Because he's still looking for that same reaction from his people. He's still saying to us, I've done all of this for you. I'm calling you into covenant with me. Well, you gave your life to me like I asked my people Israel to before. Now they failed. And we will too at times. But that call remains on our lives. How is our hearts this morning? How do we respond to this? I want to close with that question. God has so transformed us. Who we are. He has made us righteous and holy in Jesus Christ. But do we respond with a partial apathetic? Thanks God. He has so fundamentally transformed our status as people that I am asking the question, if we were there 4,000 years ago, could we touch the mountain? I'll leave that question with you. We are, our status is transformed so fundamentally in Jesus and it's, we have to treasure these things and see them as precious. Because how we understand this helps us understand how we dwell as a people as well. Because what God is doing with his church, as we looked at two weeks ago, is he's pulling together these living stones. He's building his holy temple where his presence dwells, his Shema glory. And each of us are being drawn into that. Think about that for a second. That is the place where the holy, that holy, unique presence of God dwells with his people today. Peter couldn't have written anything more controversial than that. But how do we treat the church? Do we treat it as holy or common? 
There's nothing worse you can do to the holy things of God than treat them as common. We're taught in the books of the law. Do we sometimes think, well, the church is lucky to have me. Let me tell you, I was once in that place. I remember in my time in Leslie, especially towards the end, I was frustrated. Things were happening that I didn't always agree with. I ended up in a place where I thought the church was lucky to have me. (laughs) Sounds absurd, doesn't it? It is really easy to develop those kind of mentalities and forget that what we are part of is something holy. And in some, and so marked with the divine fingerprint that is called the body of Christ. As we reflect on this outrageous grace that has changed our status, God wants our hearts, and He wants us to be a people that dwell together in ways that glorify him. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people, is what Peter tells us. What we have to be careful, and what we have to ensure that we do, is that how we respond, how we live together, is holy. Called together into one, and in some ways that's very fragile. And this is why prejudice and slander and hate and forgiveness are so often pushed against in Scripture. Because they're things that will literally defile what God is making. You're doing, we're doing the equivalent of these things take root in our heart of spray painting the wall of the temple. That's what we're doing. That's why these things are pushed against. And that's why we also hear things that that God is wanting to see in the church begin to prosper and grow, that we dwell with joy. Joy because we're part of it. Humility because, oh my goodness, what God has done is astounding. And wonder. And that we have love and joy and patience and kindness and peace and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Do you hear any familiarity in those words? They're the fruit of the Spirit. Those things are there because these living stones are to come together as one. Not chip away each other so that there's gaps and holes. What God is building is holy. And we have the privilege of being part of it. But I'll leave us with that question this morning. Is there passion there because of what God has done? Is there fire there because of what God has done? Are we casual about it all? Or are we left in breathless wonder because we have been made a holy people who can go into the throne room of God because of what Jesus has done for us. We didn't earn it. We don't even massively need to maintain it. What God is looking for is for us to respond with our hearts to him and to say those words that we declare when we become a Christian, Jesus is my Lord. Where are our hearts this morning? I'm not going to answer that. I'm going to leave you to answer that yourself. But I will tell you this. God has made it so that each of us, even with our sins and struggles, can enter his throne room confidently. Because of Jesus. And all he's looking for from us is that our hearts respond to that. And in our lives respond to the object of our hearts. Let's never treat God as casual or unholy. He is unchanging.
We can't become trite about what we see in Exodus. Instead, we should be left in wonder and awe and praise because of what God has done in Jesus Christ. But that is what has changed everything. And that is what has changed us. I want us just for a few minutes now to have that moment of space where we can give thanks to God for Jesus. Where we can raise up to him anything that's burdening in our hearts this morning. And then I will call our musicians together and we'll close our service. Let's just spend this time before God in thanks. Father, as we sit before you now, our hearts are stirred with wonder, with thanks, because of Jesus Christ. We are in that place where we are confronted with that wonderful truth that you've redefined everything in him. You are an unchanging God, but you have brought victory and salvation to humanity because of Jesus that we who turn to him cry out to him place our faith and our hope in him experience something that we can struggle to put into words and oh Lord how much we underappreciate it how little we can be thankful for it, how little we can appreciate it but this morning as we reflect on your grace and your acts and what is the basis of our covenant with you May our hearts be stilled with praise and thankfulness and may we not shrink back from you but recognising what Jesus has done seek to draw near to you. For it's in that place as we abide in you who sit at the Father's right hand that we can produce fruit, experience victory and walk with you day by day and moment by moment. So help us, Lord, to hear the words of Exodus, to hear the words of Peter, to hear the words of Hebrews, and above all, to hear your words and to rejoice because of Jesus. We are your children. And because of Jesus, we have been made holy. We pray and ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our last song this morning very much touches in on some of what we've just been reflecting on and pushing into, especially those verses in Hebrews, about the fact that we can approach God with confidence. May I dare even say it with boldness, because...